It's time for the Off the Mound with Ryan Dempster podcast presented by Sloan. I'm your host, Ryan Dempster, and today I'm joined by my favorite outfielder that ever played behind me. Yeah, this guy. I mean, I'm talking about game saving catches all the time. Absolutely unbelievable teammate, one of the best you'd ever be around. Reed Johnson's going to be joining us right here. But first, I got to tell you about Sloan's no touch hand washing technology. It's state of the art, second to none, and couldn't come at a better time. So we want to thank them for providing that technology to the people out there so we can all wash our hands, touch lists, and stay safe. That's right. Hands-free technology in a league of their own. Well, let's get to it, and let's go off the mound with Reed Johnson. Reed, what's up, pal? How is uh, the Johnson family? How are you doing, man? The, the Johnson family is doing good. Apparently, uh, I've taken on a new uh, teaching role in, uh, in the family, like uh, most of us have, but it's, it's uh, running as smooth as it could, I guess. You could be teaching launch angles, but you're actually teaching real angles, you know, like uh, math, reading. Where's your strong suit? Where's the, is it phys ed? Is that the, the one you really thrive in? I would say anything below the second grade would be my strong suit. <laughs> uh, anything above that, uh, I don't even know whatever those words you just used were. But yeah, I'd say uh, anywhere below second grade. So I'm, I'm uh, unfortunately, I got a third grader and a, and a sixth or a fifth grader. And my uh, first grader is able to uh, uh, get a little knowledge from me. But that's about it. Isn't it funny, like... Um... There was that TV show that Jeff Foxworthy, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? Yeah. And then now I find myself, like, when they need, like, something answered, I'll pretend I have to go do something else. Like, real quick, I just got to go to the bathroom. Meanwhile, I, I go in the bathroom and get on the internet. And I Google whatever it is they're looking for because I don't know the answer to it. Yeah, and then you, do, you just walk out of the bathroom with your chest up, super confident, like you know what you're talking about. And they're just like... They probably just walk away thinking, man, my dad is like one of the smartest dudes I've ever met in my life. <laughs> oh, my God. Little do they know. <laughs> yeah, little do they know. That's exactly right. What about um, uh, baseball-wise? You know, has Tice been able to be, be out there and playing some ball? Yeah, actually, um, I started my own academy out here in uh, Temecula, California. But um, being uh, the smart kid and the good genes that he got, uh, he decided to uh, jump off a playground, uh, the top of a slide the other day, and uh, shattered his an, uh, ankle bone, like a part of the fibula. So everything's intact, no surgery needed, but it's probably going to be like a, a few months before he uh, can get back out on the field. I wish I had a, a good story, like he was going in to break up a double play and sent the you know, sent the shortstop into left field, but nothing like that uh, happened. It was just a, a playground accident. So that's that's a tough age for that too, because they're like full going, and to not be able to play with their friends is a grind. Yeah, he's uh, he's ten at this point, turning eleven here in a couple months. So that's tough for him. And we actually just started up um, uh, playing a tournament last weekend. So he was sitting there in his lawn chair with his leg up in the air watching his buddies compete. That's That's got to be a tough thing for a 10-year-old for sure. So you're running a baseball academy now. What are you – what's Reed Johnson stressing to these kids that maybe, you know, other, other academies or, you know, these travel teams and these different things that aren't doing that you're really trying to focus on? 
Well, I think you would agree that like the, the main focus, like for people that don't know a ton about the game is the easy things like the offense, right? You just kind of focus on the offense. We are very, very pitching and defensive oriented. I mean, I think that that offense is going to help you help you win some games for sure. But obviously the pitching and the defense, when you're in those close games, those playoff type games that you have in the big leagues, pitching, defense, and base running, those type of attention to detail things that we're teaching over here are really the players are seeing the end result at the end of the game. And we're walking out of there with a lot of wins just because we, it's funny that the kids are 10 years old and we played at the highest level, but the same thing at the low levels wins and loses ball games as it does at the highest levels. You don't throw strikes, you're going to lose. You don't catch the ball, you're going to lose. All those things, you don't put the ball in play, you're probably going to lose. So when we're just kind of focusing on those little things, we usually walk out of there with uh, with a pretty good result at the end of a tournament. Isn't it amazing? Like, you know, you talk about it. We're so infatuated in, in baseball um, with the home run, right? Right. Everybody loves the home run. You turn on quick pitch in the morning or highlights of games and it's home run, home run all the time. But the reality is, is exactly what you said. Pitching and defense win. You can have the best lineup, but if you've got good pitchers, those dudes are going to carve those hitters up. A hundred percent. And I think even as important being more of an offensive player and less of a, less of a pitcher from my standpoint, I I really like to focus on the base running. That is just one thing that I think can can win and lose ball games, especially at that age. So we focus a lot um, on that type of base running. And I'll bring up plays that uh, maybe I saw uh, in the big leagues that I have question marks. And it's funny, even at the big league level, you'll watch base running mistakes. And 50% of the time, the announcer will not mention anything about it. So it's just when you're kind of seeing those things and you're able to point them out, um, it may be something that the public doesn't see right away, but people who really know the game will see that and say, ooh, that's where that inning changed. That's potentially where that game changed. Yeah, you're right. Like so many times, like uh, I always, and I always said, I give you so much credit. If there was a guy on first base and the bases were loaded and I need the inning to go on, and there was a ground ball in the infield, a slow roller, and there's a guy trying to turn two. You, I always said the one guy I want running at first base is was you. You took pride in the ability not to go out and hurt somebody or flip them, but t- to make it so that they couldn't turn two. And, yeah. and it's changed. I know the rules have changed and all that stuff. Right. But like, you can just continue an inning. How many times do we see two out rallies, but all of a sudden we just give in to the double play? It's just supposed to happen. Why is it just supposed to happen? Why can't that be a valuable part of your game. I love that you're teaching that to these kids. No, exactly right. And and to your point, like that's one of the things, like I played for 13 years and that's one of the moments when we were playing in Milwaukee. I remember Derek Lee was up and we had that same exact situation. Bases were loaded with one out. Um, I think we were, we were playing a big four game series in the middle of the year. We were probably four games up on Milwaukee at the time. So it could have swung uh, either way real quick. And the bases were loaded. D. Lee was up. And I knew D. Lee was like leading the league and hitting into double plays at that point. And obviously, he's got a really good chance to drive it. So I was telling my first base coach, I said, listen, I'm getting a big lead. I'm getting a big secondary. You got to let me know if that first baseman's coming because I'm going to get out there 
and I'm going to beat that second baseman to the bag. And sure enough, D. Lee hits a ground ball to short. I beat the second baseman to the spot, and I heard Ricky Weeks yell out, like as I was, as I was sliding through him. He ends up throwing the ball into the dugout, and we scored two runs, which could have been a potentially uh, uh, inning-ending double play, and we end up walking out of there with with two or three runs. And that was something like those type of games right there and those type of things is what I focused on. Like, I don't know, for whatever reason, I just had that, I had that attention to detail where those things were super important to me. Yeah. I don't, I, you know, I, I totally agree with you. You know, I remember um, Dave McKay, we had him as a first base coach in, in Chicago. He's now um, first base coach in, in Arizona, obviously a long time with the Cardinals. And he would stress exactly those things, you know, the ways to, you know, elongate an inning by, you know, doing the right thing on the base pass. You know, you see guys hit a ball in the gap and they just go double. Like, why not run hard? Like, really, you're going to have so many chances to just cruise into second. Like, if you're a superstar and you lead the league, only 50 times do you hit a double. Right. You know, so, like, why not force that throw? How many times we've seen a shortstop, now all of a sudden he has to get the relay throw and he chucks it and it short hops the third baseman and it gets away. But if you don't ever put that pressure on guys, there, it's just – it's something you can control. Sometimes there's things in the game you can't control and you can control your base running and the pressure you put on people. I, I love it. You know, I love the fact that you're teaching those kids that I think it's so cool. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's coming from like Derek Jeter's playbook where that's, that's kind of his, what he focused on is what he could control is, is that he was always going to run down to first base. He was always going to run hard. You in this game, it's, you can hit the ball hard as hard as you can all four or five at bats. And you walk out of there 0 for 4 or 0 for 5. But I'll tell you what, when you run down to first, you can control the way you play the game as far as how hard you're playing that game. And obviously there's a balance. You know, you've got a guy making $100 million. You, you want that guy to stay on the baseball field. I don't need you lunging out for wet bases and, and twisting your ankle or twisting your knee. But at the same time, just put your head down and run hard. Yep. I remember Ted Lilly, our, our, our good buddy, uh, in St. Louis when he trucked Yadier Molina. Oh yeah. <laughs> and and you know the the not the fact that he ran over Yadier or anything like that, but the mentality of which he had. We're in the shower after the game, hanging out, doing our thing, our showering thing. And I remember D Lee just looking over at Ted, shaking his head and going, Teddy, what are you doing? <laughs> and he goes, What? He goes, Why did you run over the catcher? And he goes, Because I wanted to win the game. Like that in his mind was if I can score right here, that that run might be the difference. And, you know, that's why a guy like that plays as long as he did. And a guy like you played as long as you did in the big leagues, 13 years in the big leagues. Yeah. Yeah. Teddy, Teddy was that way. And, you know, on and off the field with his uh, dirt biking adventures, he's the same. He's, <laughs> he's one speed, one speed. That's it. I always said he, if you bet him a thousand bucks, he couldn't run through a brick wall. He'd say his first question is, where do I get to start from? Exactly. <laughs> He's an animal. Um, in fact, you 13 years in the big leagues, you know, you're, you sign out of um, Cal State Fullerton, 17th round pick. Yep. And we get so caught up first round. Got to be a first rounder. And we saw it this year in the draft with guys, um, you know, with only the five rounds and stuff like that. What, what was your mindset going in? Were you, were you like, man, I just, I, I'm just going to get to the big leagues. That'd be great. Were you like, no, I'm, I'm having this, ten, you know, 10 plus year career. What, what, what was your thoughts going into? I just kind of had at, at that point, you know, I had my blinders on and I just felt like, you know, people, 
people said, was there any time where you thought you weren't going to make it? And I just, I don't know if I ever had that moment. You know, I know in double A a little bit, I struggled, but I just kind of decided and made up my mind that that wasn't going to happen. And it's just amazing how, how strong your mind can be when you set yourself to something. And um, that was, that was really my focus is, and a big part of my focus was exactly what you said. I would, I knew I was a 17th rounder demp. I wasn't going to get maybe an extra chance as like a, a first rounder or a top round guy was going to get. So I knew that I had to put my name on the map and put up big numbers in order to do that. And it was that double a year where I really turned it around and, you know, hit like 320, stole 40 bases and kind of put my name on the map. Because when you're a 17th rounder, you start to realize like, I got to open eyes. I got to be better than every single guy. If I'm in the middle of the pack on my team, that's not good enough. I got to be at the top of the pack. So at that point, I decided, made my mind up that like I was going to set out to be at the top of the pack on every team that I played on and just crawl my way all the way to the big leagues. And, and you know, you talked about it earlier, you know, here is the, the fundamentals of the game. To me, I always felt like you were one of the most fundamentally sound all-around ball players. Like, you know, the knowledge of, you know, your pitcher just throws 32 pitches in the top half of the inning. You're leading off the bottom half. You're not going to go out there and swing at the first pitch. Exactly. You know, those kind of things. Defense, like defensively, I remember, Cubs fans remember, baseball fans in Toronto, Miami, wherever you're at, everybody remembers, you know, uh, Atlanta, the great plays that you make, the diving catches and all these things. But fundamentally, over your entire career, 13 years, 18 errors. And for people don't realize that, that's that's like, you know, a little over one error a year in the outfield. That means that means you're hitting the cutoff guy almost every time because the ball's never getting away and allowed the extra base. Who was it that stressed you the fundamentals um, as you kind of came up? Because those are obviously something that were just embedded, you know, embedded into you when you started your your journey. Yeah, I was fortunate. Like I had a a high school coach that, you know, just wasn't like a uh, history teacher who threw some bats and balls out on the field. He actually had some knowledge, played in AAA a little bit. And uh, he was actually um, had played with a lot of the coaches that were at Cal State Fullerton, which was a university that I ended up going to. So I was taught at a very young age those fundamentals and was fortunate to uh, carry on at Cal State Fullerton where uh, that is more of a small ball organization. It's not the big boys who are just dropping bombs. We're taught to move runners over. And uh, like you said, in those those type of knowledgeable situations to maybe give your, uh, give your uh, pitcher a little bit of a rest after he's thrown a bunch of pitches. To me, all that is is just not being selfish. If I go up there and, oh, I think he's – I don't want to fall behind 1-0, but I'm not thinking about Dempster because he just threw 45 pitches in one inning but I don't care about him. So to me, it's just, it's about being, it's about not being selfish. And uh, like you said, being fundamentally sound is, is huge too. But I, I really accredit that to, uh, you know, the high school coach that I had, uh, Rich Emmerd, and also um, coach George Horton and coach Vanderhoek, who is now also still at, at Cal State Fullerton. When you, when you came up, you come up with Toronto, you're pretty much playing every day. Um, and then you come to Chicago in 08 and you kind of platoon a little bit. And now you come to the national league where the double switch is in play. Um, people always teammates, everybody always talked about how ready you were to go into the game. Who, who, who taught you that? Because that's, that's something that, that everybody could have in order to be ready to pinch hit, be ready to go into the outfield 
you know, especially coming from the American League where the lineup's the lineup, especially back in in that time, you know, once that lineup's in, that, that manager doesn't really do much with it unless it's an, an overwhelming, you know, matchup later in the game. So who who did you lean on kind of to, to be able to make that adjustment? Well, actually, when I was in Toronto, being uh, being a an above average defender, I was always that guy if it was, you know, a Shannon Stewart, uh, Vernon Wells and Frank Catalanato were in the starting outfield that day. I knew at some point I was better than two, two out of those three outfielders. I knew from a defensive standpoint. So I knew at some point during that game that I was going to go in that game defensively. So even from an American league standpoint, I was always thinking the game, when could I be used? When do I got to get loose? Hey, there's a left-handed pitcher warming up and Frank Catalanato is a lefty. I might hit for him in the eighth and then go out and play defense. So I'm all my mind was always racing in that, in that way. And I feel like being a pinch hitter and having a lot of success doing uh, the pinch hitting, I had a, a kid, a young kid asked me in Atlanta, like, how do you like, why are you, have you been so successful pinch hitting? And I feel like you just have to know when you're going to be used to start to settle yourself down. Because in a pinch hit situation, you're always going to be in a big, big situation late in the game, potentially, especially if you're the premier pinch hitter. You're going to be in a big situation. Your anxiety is going to be kind of raised to a level that it probably shouldn't be at. And if you get surprised to get that at bat, your anxiety is going to be way too high. And you know, Demp, when when that anxiety gets too high or – or those nerves get too high, the chance of success go way down. So I knew it was really important to me to sit there and watch the game and knew when I was know when I was going to be used. That way I could start to settle myself down mentally and get myself ready for that at bat. Um, you came you came to Chicago in 08, which was you know right in the middle of you know one of the one of the best seasons. That was one of the best teams I'd ever been on with all around guys and the way we were and how close we were, how much we didn't care about, you know, poking fun at each other. Um, it was almost like as you walk through that door uh, to, to the clubhouse, um, you just literally just checked your egos at the door. And, uh, you know, did you have those? I, I felt like it was just an incredible, incredible team to be around. I felt the same way, man. Like I, for us, like a, a rare night game at Wrigley, seven o'clock at night. I, I mean, I would want to get to the field at noon or one o'clock just to see what was going to happen. You know? <laughs> yeah. I, just, just to watch, to watch you and, and Teddy in the back. Obviously I've been in that new clubhouse now. I never, uh, never got to uh, be part of that as a player, but I just go back there and watch you guys would have like a, a, a wood, a wood plank on top of a laundry basket and you'd be playing cards in the back and we would just kind of sit there and I kind of missed that about when I saw that new clubhouse it's just there's somewhere for everybody to hide you could go you know uh, you could go a couple hours and not see anybody you know it's just like hey man have you seen Rossi today like what the heck did he even show up what's going on but yeah it's uh that was a there was really you knew that there was no place to hide from the media the only place to hide was back in the laundry back in the laundry room and uh where uh There'd be Fukudome's uh, smoking cigarettes back there and Bobby Denier just sucking them down too. It's just unbelievable. I, I, I figured by the end of that year, Bobby D would be speaking fluent Japanese because him and him and Fuki would be in there just pounding marble red 300s. Oh, you know it. 
that team was a ton of fun, and obviously it was the, the skipper was Lou, right? Oh yeah, and, and you know you came in his second year there, and I know how much, especially being a guy like if you were on the bench, you you were almost seeking out something that you would make you laugh. You know, what were some of the things that Lou did that, or a story maybe that Lou uh, reminds you, just like how much you would laugh. You know, because just just from a a caricature type standpoint, like. Yes, he was an incredibly knowledgeable baseball man and a great, you know, manager. Obviously, led us to division titles and everything like that. But he was a character. There was always something going on. Him and Sinatra, whatever it was, was always a ton of fun. Um, yeah. What, what What do you remember most about Lou? Well, I remember with you when it would be like a three-two count with a runner on first or and or a runner on first and second or runners bases loaded with two outs. And it was a three-two count. You'd say, "Hey, Lou, it's probably a good time to start the runners right here." <laughs> and, he, and he would just—he would just look at you like, kind of like trying to feel you out if you were serious or not, you know. <laughs> and uh, I also—I told that uh, story too about Derosa in the uh, at the Cubs convention on his—he had like a, a three-one count with the runner on first base, and Lou started the runner. And obviously in a 3-1 count, you're supposed to protect the runner, but you're looking for a pitch you can kind of hit as well. If it's a ball, obviously it's ball four, so you don't want to swing at a ball. So Dero takes a borderline strike down and away, and uh, this was probably about a month into the season, and he takes it, umpire calls it a strike, and the runner gets thrown out by like five feet at second base. So Dero continues the rest of his at-bat, ends up grounding out or getting out, and he comes back into the dugout and – Lou asked him, he's like, son, you got, you got to protect the runner right there. What are you doing? He goes, well, Lou, I was looking for a pitch I could drive. He said, a pitch you could drive? You don't even have an effing double yet. And this is like a month, <laughs> in, this is like a month into the season, and Dero just kind of looked at him. And, and if you were the right type of guy, you just kind of smile at Lou and laugh at his personality. But you knew, Demp, if you were soft, you weren't going to play for that guy at all. Yeah, oh, no, for sure. He pushed you and, and wanted to see who, who was – you know, kind of who were the guys he could trust in those big moments. Yeah. There's, there's, there's endless stories, endless stories, man. Endless yeah, I always love, I always love Dero with the, the suits on the plane, you know, like he would, he would be unafraid. DeRosa would you'd get on a plane and you'd have like a, a checkered suit. I remember Bobby Howery got on with this like kind of checkered suit, you know, and Bob Howery looks like he could be the WWE champion. Cause he's just like Adonis. You know, he's kind of intimidating, and D-Row didn't care. And he's like, Bobby, I love that suit. That's great. Pawn to Rook 9. <laughs> like, it was, and I'm like, oh, this is going to be a fun year. This is going to uh, be fun right here. It is going to be great. The Sinatra, there's one in, with Sinatra in uh, Philly that was pretty good, too, where uh, I did my best not to throw Sinatra under the bus, but I was at first base, and Sinatra – kind of leans in my ear and he like squeezes my arm and he says, Hey, you're, you're stealing right here. And I looked and I was like, man, I did not see Mike Quaddy give the steal sign, but you know what? I, I guess I'll go. So I end up, I think it was, he said it was a hit and run. So I end up going and get thrown out and Lou like just kind of airs me out in the dugout. And he asked me, he goes, what did Sinatra tell you? And I was trying to find any type of way to not throw him under the bus. But once I couldn't find a way, under the bus he went. <laughs> so, so 
and uh, Lou just said, oh, don't worry about it, son. I'll take care of Maddie when he gets in here. And he, you know how that went. <laughs> Dude, Matt, Maddie Sinatra was so great. The rare times I would get over to first base, you know, you know, as a pitcher, you don't get over there very much. And uh, the, the conversations that he would start asking me about his favorite Italian restaurants to go to because his wife's coming in from Seattle. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. You know, I'm like, hey, dude, there's a game going on right now. You know 100%. That, right? I had the same exact story. He said it was like a big game. You know, it was late, I think. Like, we're we're uh, getting ready to clinch a playoff berth or something like that. And I'm just like, Maddie, dude, clean it up. Let's go. How many outs are there? <laughs> <laughs> He's so unbelievable. <laughs> um, have you ever thought about getting into uh, coaching? You know, speaking of coaches, like uh, 100%. 100%. Like, I, I you know, I, I see a lot of guys, they leave and they just kind of want no part of the game when they leave. I just, I love that. I'm one of those, I'm a lifer, man. I'm like, like Teddy. I'm like you. Like, I, I love the game so much. I love to talk the game and I could sit here all day and, and talk hitting. And, and, uh, you know, I do, uh, through my baseball Academy, I'm able to like help some kids out. I work with, uh, uh, one kid who just signed as a free agent during the COVID draft with the Braves and stuff like that. So I've been working with the, with a few kids. So I, I just enjoy, enjoy talking about the game, enjoy talking about hitting. I just, I love it. And I think, uh, you know, being a bench player, one of the, one of the good managers uh, I had was Dale Swain, and Dale Swain was a starter early in his career, much like I was, and then he became a bench player later in his career, much like I was. And when you become a bench player, you really start to be a student of the game because, you, like I mentioned before, you have to know when you're going to be used. And I think that's a big part of being a manager is being able to relay that message to not only a pitcher who's going to come in or maybe a hitter who's going to come in or maybe a position player who's going to go in and play defense to be able to give those players a heads up, I think is huge. And to be able to communicate with those guys is huge. So I, th I think that that kind of gives me an advantage in that, in that spot. Yeah, absolutely. Would you see yourself maybe like, you know, as the kids get older, um, kind of exploring that option? Cause like, you know, I know how much I you love being yeah. a dad. Yeah, de definitely for sure. And, and that's, that's tough. You know, you're, you're a dad all the time and I've got, uh, you know, I got a six, six, eight and 10 year old. So they're at that age where they want dad to be home. And, and I stopped playing when my son was about six and, and my daughters were very young at the time, but, uh, that's something I would a hundred percent. And I, and I'm, I'm fully aware that the best time to get back into the game is when you're fresh out of the game. Uh, but at the same time, uh, being a dad is, is first for me right now, but, uh, 100%, I would love to get back in the game and, and uh, you know, definitely be a part of that. And it, there's no better feeling than, than helping a player uh, extend his career or helping a player with his, his own success. Uh, it's almost more rewarding than having that success um, on your own. It, it, you're right, man. It is. When you have a teammate and you can help them unlock something um, that might be in there or look at something through a different, you know, looking glass where it's like, Hey, maybe if you just tried this, cause I know for me, you know, th that's the way it was, right. I was one way and I was struggling with success and, right. and then all of a sudden to get somebody share something with me, go, Oh, yeah. that's awesome. You know, and you can exactly. remember those teammates. It's uh, it's really, really important. I just, I remember, I remember a case for me, it was in Miami with JT Real Muto. And this is when I knew like I wanted to stay in the game and continue to coach JT had got called up. I think he was like a September call up. And he got called up and he knew like, 
you know, me being a bench player, he was going to be coming off the bench a little bit and get some pinch hit ABs. And Tyler Clifford was warming up and he was given the okay that, hey, you're in the hole, you're going to hit for this guy. So he said, hey, Reader, like, what do you think about, like, how's he going to come after me? I said, dude, he's going to, if it's a big situation, he's not, like, he might show his change up right away. But if you're the, if you come up and nobody's on, if you're leading off that inning, he's going to attack you with the fastball and he's going to come with that little secondary slider for a strike, try to get ahead of you, and then he'll start mixing in his best pitch to change up. I said, if I were you, I'd look for the first pitch heater away and try to drive it to right center. He goes first pitch fastball away, drives it right over the second baseman's head for a hit. He rounds first base and looks in the dugout and like gives me a fist pump and points in the dugout. And that's like, as a coach, I could see that as having you, there's no better feeling than having that, you know? Yep. Yeah. That's, that's awesome stuff. That's what it's about, right? Cause you know, we can only enjoy our own success if we're not sharing our experiences with others. Like it doesn't make sense if you're just going to be so caught up in yourself. That's what this game is. It's always been the people passing things down to the next generation and the next exactly generation. Exactly right. So, and you, you've always just like continuously did that. You were a great teammate to me. You, uh, you, you were an incredible center fielder, right fielder, left fielder, anything I needed. Um, and you made two, two catches that, stand out to me and I want to know which one means more to you and if you were to take or which one was a harder catch the one in Milwaukee off Prince Fielder bases loaded Sunday night baseball rob a grand slam or in Washington where you ran what looked like Michael Johnson in the 200 that's how far and fast you ran dove head first came up bill straight up looked like you just finished skateboarding with Tony Hawk which which one those were two unbelievable catches. Which one did you think was a little bit better? I just from the standpoint of winning and losing a ball game, I feel like I like the Prince Fielder one. I think we end yeah. up losing that ball game in Washington. So, you know, any type of success, at least for me, uh, whether it's swinging the bat or making a really good defensive play, kind of gets like. Uh, gets pushed under the rug a little bit when you lose a ball game, at least, at least from my standpoint. So it meant a lot for me to, uh, to make that catch. And, and I think we ended up winning that game with Milwaukee by like three runs or so. So that ended up, uh, you know, ended up being a, a really big play. So that one meant a lot for me, especially um, you hooking me up with all the, all the Culver's gift cards for the rest <laughs> of my life, pretty much. Oh man. <laughs> Uh, anything for a Culver butter burger, you got it. Exactly, no, no problem. I should probably send some more of those in the mail. I'll, I'll <laughs> mail some overnight uh, on on dry ice butter burgers. You know it. Throw those on the grill. And it was a big moment too. I felt like that was such a moment because at the time, um, even though that year the you know the Brewers got into the playoffs when they got Sabathia and then um, right. all that stuff, but. It was like one of those moments where they were constantly chasing us. It was like Wrigley North and like, here's this big moment, Sunday night baseball. And just the look on Prince's face of like, really, dude, still, you guys are still doing this to us. It was just so, for me, I just, oh man, I couldn't be more thankful for, you know, here on Sunday night baseball, my mom and dad are back in Gibson's BC watching that, you know? Heck yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm their favorite player now. You got that. You still are. My mom still loves Reed Johnson, all because of that catch, and for many other reasons too. Um, you know, coming from Toronto and then coming to Chicago, what what was that like for you? What did what did it feel like um, when you you know you came to the Cubs and be able to put on 
you know, the blue pinstripes and go to Wrigley Field every day. What, what did that just feel like to be a Chicago Cub? Well, even when I was in Toronto, I was kind of like a platoon guy. You know, uh, Matt Stairs was doing some of the, the right-handed uh, pitchers, and, and I was taking care of the lefties and stuff like that. So there's still a decent uh, decent platoon role going on there. But uh, so when I came to Chicago, um, I actually came the last couple days of spring training, and then we went to Vegas uh, to play in that little uh, exhibition before we broke. And we had a, a day. We flew to uh, – flew to Chicago. We had a day before the season started. So I went over to the mall and I was shopping for things and people were coming up to me and saying, Hey man, it's great to have you here. And I'm just thinking like, do these people think I'm somebody else? Because, (laughs) you know, here I am a guy who's, you know, getting 450 at bats a year. I'm playing a decent amount, but I'm not an everyday player. I'm not a superstar, but it's just the fans in general there. They just appreciate sports in general. And I think they really appreciate those people that really work hard at playing the game. And they recognize that as well. It's not like some of those bigger cities where they, people just kind of recognize what we talked about earlier. They recognize the obvious things, the home runs, the guys that hit the ball super far, the guy that's got like, you know, he's popping his chain and doing all sorts of crazy stuff. And as far as these those fans in Chicago appreciating uh, the way that you play the game from day one, before I played one game in Wrigley, I knew it was going to be an awesome opportunity. And every single year following that, as I became a free agent, I always tried to come back to Chicago. That was always my first choice. And some people don't understand you got the team. The team has to want you first. If you can go there, that's, that's the issue. So uh, I always, I always wanted to come back to Chicago. I just love the city. Uh, so much and and the fans are really what make it special for sure yeah and I think I agree with you I think your play your style of play those catches that you make uh the the breaking up the double plays the you know not being afraid to get hit by a pitch this tough you know you know workmanlike attitude of trying to just go out there and give a hundred percent and a and and it really had this connection between you and the fans I I really saw that I thought that was you know whether or not you saw that while I was gone, you obviously just said that, you know, they, the fact that they had so much respect for you, just, it really, really stood out because of your style. And, um, you know, you wore that on your sleeve. And I, and I think, you know, fans recognize that teammates recognize that the organization recognized that. And um, it was just such a good fit to, to have you as be a Chicago Cub. You kind of exemplify what, what I think of when I think of Chicago Cubs, the way guys supposed to play the game. Yeah. It was a, it was a great four years for sure. For sure. Um, as you kind of, you know, get out of the game now and you're, you're watching and um, those kind of things, who are the guys in the game today? Like when you sit there and you watch players play, who, who, would, who would you pay a ticket to go watch? I like Kyle Schwarber, man. I yeah? like him a lot. I, I like his – obviously he's, he's different. He's a left-handed power guy. He's a little different than me, but he plays the game – he plays the game hard. And um, I like – I like watching him. Um, he's not afraid of anybody. He's not afraid to back down um, from obviously uh, who was it with some, uh, was it Bumgarner or something like that? Yeah. I don't know. Something. Like, yeah. One of those, one of those uh, scenarios went down, but you know, that's, that's the type of player that I, I, I enjoy watching obviously like just individuals as far as watching like Javi Baez play defense. Everybody obviously can point to the offensive numbers, but I just appreciate, like, I know how hard this game is, and when somebody's making something look that easy, it's just 
you just don't see a player like that uh, that plays that good at defense come around very often. So I just I really enjoy him watch uh, watching him play defense as well. Obviously, I played with Jason Hayward in um, in Atlanta for a couple years. Have a ton of respect for him, not only as a player but as a human being. And um, he plays the game hard. I know he'd he'd gone through some uh, some struggles the first year or so in Chicago, but uh, has uh, found a way to to definitely um, contribute and has picked his bat up and he's always going to be that electric defender. That's just going to make play after play. And to the guy went all the way back to what we first talking about early on in, you know, in the podcast was the fact that base running people oh, do not realize the amount of value he brings to his team, not just because of what he does on the bases, but then it sets a precedent for other guys to do those things. And he wins games on his legs alone. He might take an Oh, for three with a walk in the, in the box score, but you know, he went first to third on a ball because he got a good read off the bat and things like that, that takes pride in every aspect of the game that, you know, over the totality of his contract, yeah, sure, it's not 40 and 100, but it was never 40 and 100. It's you're paying the guy for the all-around play, and he exemplifies that to a T. Right, and he's just – he's leading by example like you just said too, and I think it's uh, – when you're seeing, seeing a big man like that who plays every single day pretty much – playing the game hard, playing the game right, running the bases the right way. Uh, as a young player, why can't I do that? Why can't I run the bases the right way? I'm not even playing every day. I can do that, uh, you know, once every couple days. That's not that hard to do. And it just it just, uh, it breeds a good culture within an organization. And I, I think having players like that around is uh, very, very valuable and worth every penny of it. Yeah, no doubt. And then you're a guy, I mean, I know you got to love the fact that Riz just stands right on top of the plate and says, go ahead, hit me. I mean, you were hit 130, what is it, 134 times in your career? The appreciation you have for just, and how he does it. You were, you were much the same way. If a guy hit you, it was, cool, I'm going to first base and I'm going to figure out a way to touch my foot on home plate before I get out of here. Yeah, and that was, that was my mentality is when I was going to stand there, I was just going to stand there and I said, I don't think you want to hit me. I think you're afraid to hit me. And if, if, that's the, if that's the mentality that you're going to have, you're going to make a mistake in the middle of the plate. Obviously, there's some pitchers out there that have that, have that grind. I know you wouldn't be afraid to hit me. You might just do it on purpose. <laughs> but uh, I think a lot of those guys, it's almost like you're daring them, right? It's like, and I think it just set a precedent for me. When I was digging into the box, I always dug in hard. And I always dug in close because I was just setting a precedent for the at-bat, right? Like I was just telling myself, like, I'm in a fight right now. And if I stand off the plate, I'm basically like conceding to him that I'm intimidated or I'm afraid. So I felt the opposite where I was going to stand on top of the plate and I was going to take what I wanted to take to the pitcher rather than having it the other way around. Heck yeah, man. I love that. I just love that. That's so true. Because like, you know, I've always said, you know, with Riz, like he just, listen, nobody's here to headhunt. That's not what I'm talking about. It's okay if guys get hit by pitches and that's always the battle, right? The pitcher and the hitter. It's like, that's my plate down and away is my part. If you're going to hit down and away, I'm going to run it in. And there was always this kind of give and take. I think that major league baseball a little bit is, is scared of guys getting hit now. And, you know, a lot of that has to do with young kids not knowing how to pitch inside and everybody throws a hundred. So it's dangerous, but at the same time, it's part, it's part of the battle between the pitcher and the, that dog fight between the pitcher and the hitter. Yeah. It's always, always 
going to be a battle back and forth. And uh, like, I, I know you're in a, you're in agreeance more with the way things used to be ran in the past where the players kind of police things. And if, if your player, uh, if your pitcher is throwing 98 miles an hour and he can't control the inside part of the plate and he's hitting two or three of our guys, we know it's on accident, but somebody on your team is, is going to get hit. And that's just kind of the way the game used to be played. Uh, it's just not played that way anymore. It's just uh, um, obviously there's some guys and some pitchers out there still that, you know, sitting down there lurking in the bullpen, watching that type of thing develop, and they can't wait to get in to be able to, uh, you know, try to try to uh, avenge one of their teammates being hit. But I think that's that's just I don't think people really understand. They just turn on the TV every once in a while. They don't realize that uh, – we're together, Demp, for 162 games and 180 days. Um, you, you guys at that point were more my family than my own family was. I saw yep. you more in between spring training and a six-month or seven-month season with the playoffs than I actually saw my own family. So I don't, I don't think people realize how close the brotherhood is. And when you see one of your boys get hurt, um, it's just a natural reaction uh, to make sure that um, he's taken care of. Yeah, 100%. Um, other teammates that you've had, and this is a guy that you played with for a little bit in 2012, David Ross, um, in Atlanta, you get traded over there as your teammate. What were your impressions of him as a teammate? And did you see him becoming a manager and, uh, and being a successful one like he has been already? I definitely did. I think, uh, you know, for, for me and Rossi, that was towards like the middle back end of both of our careers at that point. So um, I was a bench player at the time, um, coming off the bench, platooning, facing lefties, and he was a backup catcher at the time behind McCann. So there was a lot of opportunities for me and Rossi to sit on the bench together and, and talk baseball. And uh, like I said, when you're together with a guy for, uh, you know, 162 games, you get to know a lot about him. And, um, you know, there's those type of guys that you can just sit down next to and, and you can tell that they have such a passion and love for the game. And we could just sit there for, for a three-hour, nine-inning game and just talk baseball and different situations that come up throughout the game. So you could definitely tell um, um, how knowledgeable he was of the game and that uh, his next step was going to be, uh, at some point, being a manager in the big leagues. Did you know he was that good of a dancer, or did that ever come up? No, I actually kind of put myself in that scenario to see if I could pull something off like that. I don't know if I could, man. He did, he did, uh, he did pretty well. I was, I was proud of him. Yeah, same here. I, I mean, I knew he was funny for sure, a good communicator, great teammate. But like when the music was blasting in the clubhouse, I wasn't watching him do the electric slide through there. So when he said "Dancing with the Stars," I was like, "Whoa!" But you oh. know what? He's you know Rossi. Rossi's one of those guys. He's not afraid of anything. So when they came a calling, I'm sure he wasn't he wasn't going to back down for sure. Yeah, hundred percent. Well, I hope that one day, um, just like him getting a chance to manage in a big league team. Um, that you get a chance to be a coach or manager or whatever it ends up being, because um, you're one of the the most knowledgeable guys I'd ever played with. You love the game. You love talking the game. You're a great communicator to people. So, um, you know, I really hope that that happens for you, man. I, I, I would love to see you be on a big league team managing somewhere. I think I might need to uh, switch agents, Stemp. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody, I, I, I take a small finder's fee. That's all. There you go. And uh, <laughs> we'll make sure that that uh, you get that because you deserve that for sure. But uh, I, I really appreciate you coming on with us and uh, here at Off the Mound talking some baseball. 
you know, having some fun. It was really, really awesome and great to catch up with you. Yeah, it was awesome, Dent, man. I appreciate it. Always. never. I'll, I'll always be here, buddy. Sweet, man. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed our conversation. To hear more conversations like the one you just heard, you can download and subscribe to the Off the Mound with Ryan Dempster podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And it's all presented by our good friends at Sloan. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you later.